I've developed a theory for this movie. And it's that Robert keeps going back to Mary because Robert knows that he that no one else is gonna put up with shit. Um and she does for some reason. Um and 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 Mary doesn't have shit, so she she deserves better. Um, I don't know why she again that kind of like this is sort of an abusive relationship where she keeps coming back to. Um, but you know, at the beginning of the movie, he says there's 10 million people in this city alone. How hard can it be to find the perfect person? And that word perfect is the crux of his problems. You know, he's looking per- for perfection. He's finding issues in this relationship where issues don't lie. Welcome back to the Formative Films Project, a podcast series where we discuss how and why the movies we watch shape us, entertain us, and help tell the stories of our lives. I am your host, Braden Shaw. And this is part two of our mini-series looking at depictions of romance in movies. Last time, we talked about some relationships hindered by bad timing and miscommunication. This time around, we'll look at five relationships with abrupt expiration dates, but I promise I'll do my best not to make it entirely doom and gloom. First up, another brief encounter that features the debut of one of the brightest stars of the 20th century. My name is Ian Brownell, and my favorite movie is Roman Holiday. Now, Ian Brownell isn't going to try and persuade anyone that Roman Holiday is the greatest movie ever made. But for me, it encapsulates my favorite genre, which isn't really the romantic comedy, although I am a fan of romantic comedies, but it's sort of a a subgenre that I created myself, I guess, called the brief encounter genre, named after the film Brief Encounter, which is the first of the uh, Noel Coward, David Lean collaborations, uh, which is a lovely film. And what I mean by a brief encounter film is essentially a movie about two characters who share a very brief amount of time together but that amount of time completely transforms the course of their life. Some notable examples of brief encounter movies would be John Carney's Once, Clint Eastwood's Bridges of Madison County, Richard Linklater's Before Sunrise, and Andrew Hayes' Weekend, which we talked about last episode. And then probably one of the ultimate examples is Lost in Translation, where you know these two people come together and... They're from totally different worlds, totally different ages, but they have this thing in common where they're this sort of lost in a, in a strange culture that they don't fully fit into. They're not sure why they're there. They're having issues in their own primary relationships, and they just sort of fall into this brief time where they spend with each other, and it, it basically connects them in a way that's profound and very difficult to describe, which is why the ending of that movie is so great because it's wordless and you can just imagine the perfect words are being said. But in the real life brief encounters that we have, there are no perfect words. Like you can't, you can't express verbally what that feels like. And the end of brief encounter is, um, I mean, the, the end of lost in translation gives you that feeling without having to articulate the words. And I think that's also true in Roman Holiday because in Roman Holiday, they are prevented because it's in public that, you know, the two characters, Gregory Peck and Audrey Hepburn's characters can't say what they mean, but through an, or what they, they can't tell each other what they're feeling and what the past 24 hours 
meant to them, but through a series of facial exchanges or, you know, glances, um, the way they say certain words, we can see that they know what they each mean. Um, so I always find that some of the best brief encounter movies are ones where the endings are, are um, fairly wordless or silent. Um, and the, you know, the other thing I'll say about brief encounter, uh, about brief encounter movies is that I think the cinema going experience is itself a brief encounter. Uh, you, you, you're watching a movie for a very short period of time, usually less than two hours. And movies like all the people who come into your life have different impacts on you. Most people that you meet in your life, you, they don't stay with you. You, you, they, you forget about them, whether it's somebody that you're you know, standing in line with and you have a fun conversation, but that's it. Someone you meet on a plane, someone you, know, you perhaps went to college with, you know, whatever it is, like you know, people have different um, lengths of connection. And every once in a while, you meet someone who either becomes a lifelong friend or perhaps doesn't. Perhaps it's just you spent a week with them or a weekend, and yet they have affected you more than practically anybody else in your life. And that's true of film too. We, if you, especially if you're someone like me, you watch a lot of movies, and you know a lot of them just are like, okay, that's fine. That was that was good or that was bad. And then some of them just stay with you and linger with you and you keep revisiting them over and over again and you feel differently about them sometimes you know 10 years later you might feel differently or see it with different eyes but it's still an amazing film so that's i feel like the brief the i feel like roman holiday is the best example of a brief encounter and that's why it's my favorite movie because i feel it's my favorite it's the best example of my favorite genre Talking with Ian briefly, you quickly realize the depth of his film love and knowledge. It helps that he has his own blog called The Film 5000 Project, a project he started in 2012 that houses his own film reviews and his quest to watch over 5,000 films in order to make a definitive 100 best films of all time list. You know, film outside of my interpersonal relationships is the most important thing to me. Um, you know, I, I'm as I've gotten older and I'm almost 50, most other interests have taken much more of a backseat. I mean, I was never a sports fan. I know you're a big sports fan, but um, even though I live in Boston, which is a very sports oriented city, like it, it, it's never been a big thing for me. Uh, I'm not a video game guy. I loved video games in the eighties when they were arcades when I was a kid, but I just have no interest in playing them at home. I love novels, but I am dyslexic, so I'm a slow reader and a slow writer too. It's one of the reasons I started my blog was just to try to get better at writing and making it into a daily practice, which I have failed at doing, but I, I still, it does still help. Uh, and you know, I love the theater, but uh, I don't have a lot of time to go to the theater. I, when I lived in New York, I knew a lot of playwrights and I knew a lot of actors and I could go to you know, play readings and free shows. And you know, I really sort of haunted works in progress and you know all kinds of amazing theater living in boston i mean we have theater here but the good theater is mostly like you know the sort of expensive theater and even some of that isn't that great you know not like you're sort of spoiled if you lived in new york for theater uh i've never lived in chicago but i um you know like living in boston it's like it's here but it's not the same um so all those other things and also television you know i loved television growing up as a kid but you know, something about this golden age of television that we're supposedly living in has a lot less interest to me. Um, 
I'm, I'm someone who really loves the three act structure of film and the sort of open-ended sort of endless um, arcs of uh, a lot of television, even short form, you know, television uh, with, with some very important exceptions is less interesting to me because if something goes and then just stops or concludes in a very unsatisfying way, which I think describes 75% to 92% of all television that's made in this golden era, it's not interesting to me. It's incomplete and it's just not successful. Although it's a wonderful showcase for actors and writers, like there's so much more employment and I have lots of friends who are actors and writers. So I'm thrilled that they like not only have steady jobs, but that they actually get to be creative on like a weekly basis. It's wonderful. But in terms of my passion, it is very much that sort of two hour, let's say 80 minute to four hour journey that you go on through a feature film. Uh, I'm someone who, you know, I don't, I'm not a religious person and I don't have like a spiritual practice, but I do like, I feel like I get from film what a lot of people get from church, you know, not so much from, not so much the sort of connection to God or the like understanding of the universe, but the other things you get from church, like uh, a sense of community, even a moral compass. Like I feel like a lot of my moral compass has been shaped by the films I've watched over the last 50 years. And um, I get so much out of cinema. Um, and that's both in terms of discovering new cinema, discovering new voices and revisiting you know, what, what came before in the last 110 years of cinema. And then of course, rewatching the same movies over and over again and seeing them through different eyes based on the decade of life that I'm in. From 1953, Roman Holiday, written by John Dighton and a then blacklisted Dalton Trumbo and directed by William Wyler, follows the touring Princess Anne, played by Audrey Hepburn, overwhelmed by her duties on our European goodwill tour. While in Rome, she sneaks away for a night out to herself, but, thanks to a sedative from her doctor, she falls asleep on a bench and is found by American journalist Joe Bradley, played by Gregory Peck. He takes Anne back to his apartment to sleep it off before putting two and two together and realizing he can get a story out of her. Thus comes an excursion with Princess Anne around Rome the following day that quickly turns romantic. Nominated for 10 Oscars and winning three, this is widely considered a classic in the romantic comedy genre. Certainly the first time I saw the movie, which I remember very well, it was in the mid-90s, um, I was, it was an escape. Like for me, it started out very much as an escape, but I started to think about, as soon as it was over, I started to think about the first time I fell in love, which was a brief encounter. Um, you know, I only know, knew this woman for really a handful of days over like a year and a half period, but you know, cumulatively it was like maybe 10 days. Um, but I still believe she had the, one of the most profound effects on my life for the, for the better uh, as, you know, anybody aside from like my parents and my current partner, like she, this was, yeah, I think that, I mean, really that she's like the third most in, influential person in my entire life. Um, and the experience I went through her was brief, but profound. And I remember as soon as the movie was over thinking about that and wondering like, what were the other, what, you know, am I just, was I primed for that? Like, is it in my DNA to have my first encounter be a brief encounter? Or was that actually shaped by the movies that I really responded to as a teenager? Some of them were 
the case that uh, people lived happily ever after. But many of them were movies where the protagonists didn't end up together. There's a great little kind of cheesy uh, movie from 1984 called No Small Affair that I saw when I was like, I think 13, maybe, maybe 14, maybe 15, but like still, you know, I was not a player as a teenager. I don't think I'd even kissed a girl when I first saw this movie. Um, but it really had a profound effect on me. It's a John Cryer plays this photographer, kind of nerdy photographer. So I totally identified with him. And he falls in love with this like 20 something uh, like singer in a bar that Demi Moore plays. And, you know, it's again, like from the get go, it doesn't seem like these two are gonna end up together. And it would be weird if they ended up together. But just because they don't belong together in a permanent sense, doesn't mean that they can't have a profound effect on each other, which of course they do. And so I, that film resonated so hard with me, but I don't know, did I just see the right film at the right time? And therefore it like imprinted on me and I started to live my life that way? Or was I like born to love this type of concept of this brief encounter? And therefore when I saw that film, it resonated. I have no idea. I don't think that deeply into this kind of thing. I just think this movie was important to me and I can see the chain of other movies, you know. Roman Holiday serves as a star-making vehicle for the likes of newcomer Audrey Hepburn and a star-revival vehicle for the likes of Gregory Peck, still a decade out from his career-defining role of Atticus Finch, who is looking to soften his image and certainly achieve that through the character of Joe Bradley. But what may be more surprising, and in the grand scheme of American film history probably more important, is the entrance of Audrey. You know, one of the, obviously one of the standout parts of Roman Holiday is Audrey Hepburn's performance. You know, she won the Oscar for it, her first Oscar and it was her first major role. Yeah. Um, what did you, what did you think of her performance here and how this kind of launched the career of one of the, you know, premier actresses of the 20th century? Well, so that's, it's interesting in terms of the first time I saw it, I was, um, I think I had left New York by that point, but I was back in New York and I was with my best friend and neither of us knew, even though we both studied film, we didn't really know Audrey Hepburn movies very much. We, uh, you know, we always knew of her and her iconic look and the posters and everything, but we hadn't really seen a lot of um, Audrey Hepburn movies. And there was uh, a series being run at the now long gone Gramercy Theater on 23rd Street. And we were like, oh, let's go. It's like, you know, the two, it was like two days of double features. So um, the first, I, I, I may get some of the chronology here wrong, but basically uh, the first one I believe was Breakfast at Tiffany's and Sabrina. Now I'd never heard of Sabrina, even though it's a Billy Wilder film with Humphrey Bogart and William Holden, and it's a big movie, but at the time I'd never heard of it, but I'd certainly heard of Breakfast at Tiffany's. It had a reputation of being like one of the greatest movies ever made. So we went to see Breakfast at Tiffany's and stayed to watch Sabrina. Um, and you know, Breakfast at Tiffany's was very disappointing. I'm a big fan of Blake Edwards, but I didn't really get Breakfast at Tiffany's. I didn't think it was funny. I didn't think it was romantic. I loved the score. I loved seeing her sing Moon River and that was worth the price of admission right there. But I didn't connect with those characters. So I was sort of like, oh, what's the big deal? And then we stayed to watch Sabrina and Sabrina is a fantastic movie. I really loved Sabrina and I completely fell in love with her in Sabrina. Like first, like, I mean, I was like early, early to mid twenties at this point. So I definitely loved like seeing her as like the sort of young 
child version that she plays and then she like transforms into this like sophisticated you know young woman and i was just like i thought the transformation was amazing and i thought her acting in that movie was absolutely phenomenal i just i just loved it i thought it was terrific um and i was like okay well let's definitely come back tomorrow and see the next double feature which was funny face which again i had heard of funny face it had a big reputation as being one of these great musicals with fred astaire and Roman Holiday was like the second one. And I'd never heard of Roman Holiday. So same thing happens. We go in, we watch Funny Face. I really didn't like Funny Face. I was like, in a deep, Fred Astaire is so old in that movie and not, I mean, I love Fred Astaire in terms of watching him dance, but he's not a very charismatic lead and they didn't seem like they belonged. There's some funny parts in, in Funny Face for sure, but it didn't do much for me as a movie. So it was the same thing. We come out at the intermission, we're like, oh, that wasn't very good. Well, let's stay for this other one. And then we watched Roman Holiday and it was an absolutely life-changing experience. Um, interestingly, the before the movie started, the usher came out and he said, there's a, there's a problem with the print. This is back in the 35 millimeter days. He said, I just want everybody to let, you, let everybody know that the last 10 minutes of the film are out of sync by about a good 40 frames, I think, which is significant. Um, so he said, it shouldn't be a problem. There's actually not a lot of dialogue in the last 10 minutes, but I wanna make sure everybody knows, which I so appreciate it. I love it when like, if there's going to be a problem, if an usher can come out and tell you that they know about it, it it's much easier to just sit back and enjoy the movie. So knowing that, even though th I think this is one of the greatest final scenes in the entire history of cinema, it was the first time I saw it, it was compromised. but you know, again, this is one of the reasons I love film and I loved the 35 millimeter celluloid era um, was that that defect made the film and my first exposure to it all that much more memorable. Like I really, really remember everything about the screening and part of it was because it was out of sync in the last reel, um, but it didn't really affect how I felt about the film. I still got what the end of the movie was about you know, they said a couple of words a second or two after their mouth said it, but you know, uh, that, that last scene is all about the looks. It's all about what they're, what they're feeling and what, what they're saying to each other with their eyes. So that was the last of four movies that I saw with Audrey Hepburn in them. And so it's, I guess, reverse order because obviously that was her first big movie. And um, yeah, by the end of that quadruple feature, I was, I was sold, you know, I was like, this is, this is an, there's a reason why this woman is an icon. And um, I, the, the playfulness of her performance in Roman Holiday is so great. I mean, there, she has reaction shots, that classic line where she's drunk and she's like, you know, she's saying pajamas and I've never been alone in a man's room before. It's very unusual without my, whatever she said, I can't, I can't quote it, but she says, you know, without my pants on, it's most unusual, whatever the quote is. Sorry, I can't quote it. But again, there is a reason why I haven't watched this movie over and over again, because it is so special to me. It's probably of like my 10 favorite movies. It's the one I've watched the least because it's the one that I really want to only watch when I need to watch it. You know, and I want it to be the last movie that I ever watch. You know, if I get to if I get to control that, which I probably won't, but hey, some people do, and I can be like, hit play on Roman Holiday. I'm gonna go in the next two hours. You know, that's that's what I want. That's how I want to leave this earth. Is watching that movie. The character of Princess Anne is fascinating as well. Either looking at her through the lens of coping with fame, or even that desire for escapism. I mean, 
I, it, you could look at it through the lens of fame, but I think it's also looking through the lens of like, we all want to escape our, our responsibilities. I mean, as you, you, your earlier question, like, is film an escape? It's like, yeah, most of the time it is an escape. That's what it's for. And that's exactly why this film feels like an escape is because you're watching someone in a heightened situation. Like most of us are not part of a royal family. We don't have royal diplomatic duties that we have to do, especially at a young age, the way she does, that are totally you know, restrictive and prescripted for us where we can't like speak as ourselves, but we have to represent our nation. Like that's one of the things, again, I love about, I love kitchen sink drama and I love realistic drama, don't get me wrong. But the thing I love about Hollywood movies is the heightened reality. Like we go to see people whose situations we can relate to, but they're so much more exaggerated than ours. But everybody can relate to being feeling restricted in their job or feeling like they can't be themselves 100%. So the idea of like fleeing that and going incognito and like discovering a city, especially when, you know, Princess Anne is basically going to all these cities on this goodwill tour and she never leaves the like hotel or the press room or wherever it is that she is kind of wrangled into. And if she does, it's for some kind of big photo op. She doesn't actually get to talk to anybody except for members of the press and dignitaries. So here she gets to escape all that and hang out with regular people and eat gelato and smoke her first cigarette and ride on a Vespa and stick her hand into the mouth of truth. And you know, all these like really, really fun things and also fall in love to a certain degree with this, with this person that she knows she shouldn't fall in love with and she can't really fall in love with, but she can't help but have her heart stirred. So yeah, I think, I mean, <laughs> I definitely, I'm definitely down with the, um, with the escape from fame aspect, but also just on a broader lens, just escape from your, whatever your responsibilities in life are. Everybody needs to escape for at least 24 hours, every, every couple of years at least, or else you go crazy. Oh, and kind of like you mentioned there, I think one of the most endearing parts of this film, but also just one of my personal favorites is the, are those excursions around Rome, right? You know, riding on the Vespa, getting gelato, as you mentioned. I mean, what are some moments, especially the way this is shot, right? And the way that Rome really plays a character in this film. Um, what, what, what are some standout moments for you and kind of some of those, like, I guess, day of freedom, if you will? Well, I mean, it's, it's, as you may or may not know, like they thought about shooting this in Hollywood, you know, and I think they had it, I believe if, and you know, I am not a film historian, but I listen to a lot of podcasts and I read a lot of books on film. So hopefully I'm getting this accurate, but I believe that Weiler had the choice, which was shoot it in Hollywood and you can shoot it in color or you can go on location, but then you got to shoot it in black and white. And his option was, well, definitely we got to do this in Rome. This is a Roman story. You know, we got to we got to shoot this in the real place. It's fine to shoot it in black and white. And it is so much better in black and white, I think, than it would have been in color, even if they had shot in Rome in color. I mean, that would have been really interesting. It would have been great. I, I can't think of that many movies shot in Rome or in Italy, really. Um, from that period that are in color. So it would be so cool to see the Colosseum at that time and you know some of these cafes and things and the fountains um, in color. But this is a movie that I think absolutely belongs in black and white. The deep focus photography is really beautiful. You really feel, you know, it doesn't feel like there's back projection. And I don't actually think there is any back projection, but there might be some in that uh, Vespa scene. But either way, like back projection in the 50s in color looks really, obvious, whereas in black and white, not so much. Um, 
so I love I love all the scenes of the sort of the you know the day when when Gregory Peck sort of accidentally runs into her on the steps and he's just like whoa yes I remember you you know um, the scene where they go get coffee and she gets her and she has her first cigarette where that's the first time Eddie Albert is taking pictures of her um, but and and the apartment too like Gregory Peck's apartment it it uh, it actually does sort of remind me of some like California style apartments like uh, where where Humphrey Bogart lives in a lonely place. They're in that sort of like Melrose Place kind of courtyard type thing. And it's very similar in Roman Holiday where he sort of, he goes into the complex of apartments where there's a big kind of courtyard and there's a staircase up there. And the geography of that plays into the narrative really well in terms of like, is, is the princess still up there? Is she asleep? What happened to her? Where'd he go? Like the, all that kind of um, almost farcical stuff. Um, but certainly, for me, I think the scene, you know, the sort of party scene where they go to the dance and it's like on the water. And that's the one where she like hits the guy over the head with the tennis racket. And Eddie Albert is like in a crowd, like popping up, trying to take pictures of them. Um, it's both really funny. It has really great energy. You can feel the chemistry between them really clicking. And it all feels like it's happening in a real place. And all the extras feel like they're actually Italians. And they're they're having a like everybody's having a good time in that scene. So the energy of that I think really uh, just kind of fills me with delight. I can watch that scene over and over and over again. Um, but you know all the scenes that that really take advantage of the location I think are just priceless. And it's so great that we have you know it's a beautiful Blu-ray of it. We've still got you know 35 millimeter prints of this movie that are in good shape. It's great to see that on a big screen. Which, as Ian says would be the ideal situation to watch Roman Holiday in. I would say in a perfect world, you go to a, 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 a cinema that's running the film on 35 millimeter and doing you know, an Audrey Hepburn festival like I did, because I feel like I saw it under the perfect, perfect conditions the first time. But I guess what I would say if I was trying to make a sales pitch is I would remind people that you know, in the 1950s, it's a time when movie narratives developed at a slower, more deliberate pace. So, you know, this is a full two hour movie. Most romantic comedies that we're used to are like 90 minutes, 95 minutes. Like this is a two hour movie. So this is like, you know, it doesn't zip along. Um, it's patient, it's quiet in a lot of spaces. So you do kind of want to like settle in for, you know, a, a, an old movie that is never dull but not like a laugh a minute and not like a, uh, a, a, an exciting adventure. You know, um, it's a movie that you need, you know, to turn off your phone and maybe start it a little bit, not too late because it is two hours, but like, you know, don't, don't start it in the afternoon when you've got other things on your mind. Um, and um, when you watch Roman Holiday, see if you can transport yourself back to what was, you know, a simpler time. Um, you know, but there was still all kinds of stuff going on in the 1950s. I mean, the fact that Dalton Trombo's name isn't on uh, the screen is a perfect example of like actually one of the darkest things that ever happened in our country. You know, the, the McCarthy witch hunts were, you know, at least in terms of politics, um, one of, you know, the, the most shameful chapters in recent American uh, government. Um, so even though this is a light, bouncy movie, you know, there's, there's a reason why the primary screenwriter of the movie isn't listed on there. And, you know, so you can go and research that. I mean, there's movies, both good and bad movies made about that. Um, but uh, 
I, I, yeah, I think the main thing I would say is try to watch the movie in as much of the spirit of the era that it was made as possible, because you will get more out of it. You'll get more out of it, both in terms of being able to lose yourself in the movie in that escapist way, and you'll get more out of it in a sort of cerebral, intellectual, like looking back with hindsight way. Apologies for the dramatic tonal shift, but we'll now jump ahead 52 years for our next film. My name is Laura Cordy, and my favorite movie is Brokeback Mountain. This pick can certainly be described as a new favorite. In fact, Laura Cordy says she first watched Brokeback Mountain for the first time just a few months ago. And I cried my eyes out all alone in my dark living room. Uh, I, I just watched it on a whim. Um, it was incredible. And the reasoning for that could be because she's a self-described hopeless romantic and a lover of romantic films. And um, it's been very good escapism during the pandemic to do something that's just so uh, sickly sweet. Um, and Brokeback Mountain isn't sickly sweet, but it's it's definitely very tragic. Um, and I think like I couldn't what draws me in about this movie is I, I mean, it's like star crossed, right? I mean, the most uh, retching feeling is like desperately wanting something you absolutely can't have. And so I think that, um, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal and Heath Ledger do such a good job of portraying all the nuances of, of you know, loving something that you can't have. Now, before we get to Jake, G, and Heath, let's first back up a second. Laura, a California politics reporter for the Sacramento Bee, wouldn't call herself a movie snob. I would say that I'm a very um, equal opportunity movie viewer. Um, but, you know, I love a good movie. I love um, watching the Oscars. I love, I just watched the Golden Globes, which is also like TV shows. Um, but I think like every normal American, I have a healthy uh, curiosity and love of like Hollywood and, and film trivia and stuff like that. Definitely. Um... I guess I would consider myself a film snob then, if that's the terminology when he... <laughs> that's okay. I, you know, it's funny because like, I'm friends with Courtney Bierman, who is like the encyclopedia of movies and everything to do with film. And like, I enjoy it so much. I have no idea what she's talking about most of the time, but I love it. Like I love to learn things. And so I respect the movie snobs. Movie snob or not, based on this pick, I can say she has good taste. From 2005, Brokeback Mountain, written by Larry McMurtry and Diana Osana, adapted from the Annie Proust short story, and directed by Ang Lee, can best be described as a romantic tragedy. The film follows two ranchers named Ennis Delmar, played by Heath Ledger, and Jack Twist, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, who find themselves paired up for a summer sheep herding job in 1963. During that summer, they forge a deep bond and eventually a romance they have to hide, partly due to societal acceptance, or lack thereof, and the fact Ennis is set to get married once he leaves broke back. Through the rest of the film, they meet up at various points, unable to live together and in their full truth, which puts a strain on themselves and loved ones in the periphery. The film was nominated for eight Oscars, winning three, including Best Adapted Screenplay for McMurtry and Osana, and Best Director for Lee, notably making him the first Asian director to win the award. You know, I was a kid when it came out in 2005, and I remember my parents going to see it, and I remember it kind of being like a joke when I was a kid. And I think that whether people regard it as a joke or not, it definitely is like a cultural um, phenomenon, maybe is the word. It's definitely a cultural um, 
film. Like it, it has a place in American filmography. But anyways, my understanding of it growing up was kind of like, ha ha ha, that's gay stuff. Like, you know, that's the way that it was kind of put to me when I was a kid. And so, um, I don't know, I just never really thought about it. And so now that I'm an adult with access to many streaming services just came up and, um, you know, I thought I should take a look at this big thing that everybody's been talking about forever. Um, and so that was kind of my relationship going into it. And I was a little bit mad because I was like, nobody told me it was this good. <laughs> nobody told me it was this incredible. And like for 2005, holy shit, like, of course, that was groundbreaking. Like, it, it was incredible. Laura raises an interesting point about the film's release date, and she's totally right. It is nuts that this film dropped in 2005. At the time, we, meaning the U.S., are in the second George W. Bush administration and four years after 9-11, and basically the country then, and of course now, is not the most tolerant place. I suppose it's also fitting that Crash, a misguided, didactic film looking to shed light on racism in America in supremely ignorant fashion, beat Brokeback Mountain for Best Picture at the 2006 Oscars. I was just curious what you thought of, you know, this film, you know, being so acclaimed and, you know, coming out with, and, you know, big stars um, and talking about the subject matter. I was curious what you thought about having this film, you know, drop in 2005. Man, I, I wish that I could understand what it was back then. Like, I, I think that people were starting to kind of accept um, homosexuality as like this thing that exists, but it was almost like kind of camp or kind of like, that's why people kind of made fun of it. It was kind of like, ha ha ha, like a joke still that people made at bars and like to their buddies. Um, I Tell me if I'm wrong, but I think like the first series of Queer Eye was coming out out around this time where like they took straight men and uh you know dressed them up um so I think it was still a joke so to have this like very gritty very sincere um portrayal of um you know two gay men had to have been like really sobering for a lot of people um the other thing that I wanted to point out which is you, you know a movie is good when like afterwards you Google everything about it and you're like looking up Reddit posts from like 10 years ago about like, what did this mean? Um, but I, I found an interview with Jake Gyllenhaal after Heath Ledger's death, um, where he talks about how, I think at some award show following Brokeback Mountain coming out, um, they wanted Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal to come out and present an award and during their little banter, like kiss, like do a like shocking, you know, kiss and um Heath Ledger wouldn't do it because he was like it's not a joke this isn't a funny thing to me and I think that was just so like he got it and I think that was so ahead of its um you know ahead of his time for Heath Ledger to be like this isn't something to mock like this is a really sincere story that we're not going to make fun of so hats off to him and it's not just the dynamic between Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal that makes this film so moving but also the aesthetic choices from Ang Lee and his crew I was just curious what you thought um, of the, the score, you know, the music of this film. And, and I feel like, I mean, it's very like melancholic and kind of, and I, I just feel like it fits really well. I was just curious what you thought about it. Yeah, I found myself listening to the soundtrack when I like <laughs> am driving or like cleaning because it is just kind of um, introspective. Um, somebody, you know, there's something to be said about um, you know, you and I are both writers. And so we think a lot about the words that we use. And 
Um, you know, I've heard people say before that there's certain economics when it comes to writing and that less is more and you have to really choose your words. And if you choose the right words, you don't need to be overly verbose. You know, you can get a point across. Um, and I feel like that soundtrack, especially the opening theme, it's so um, simple and um, sharp and melancholic but it, it just does that, it, it kind of like, it, you know, the story between um, Jake Gyllenhaal and, uh, oh my God, Heath Ledger, sorry, <laughs> Jake Gyllenhaal and Heath Ledger is like really, it's very complicated and it's very nuanced. And obviously there's cultural implications and family implications, but I feel like the score just kind of like flattens it to this. This is a sad story about two people in love. This is two people um, who can't have each other. And I think that it just condenses really nicely into that soundtrack. So that is my summary of the soundtrack. Well put, well put. Um, you know, I feel like uh, there are several elements of this film you could describe as beautiful. And one of them is uh, those, those landscape shots, right? You know, those yes. mountains, those rivers, those valleys, you know, they... I think it's set in Wyoming. They shot in Alberta, Canada for most of this. Oh, did they? That's yeah, great. I, I read, I, that was some internet research I did um, after this. <laughs> uh, just because what you thought of just the, the aesthetics of this and just how it looks and how lush all of it looks. Yes. Yes, it's incredible. And I mean, there's symbolism with all of this, right? Like, you know, Brokeback Mountain is this place of like, freedom and openness where they can be themselves like I think that Ang Lee beautifully uses the um the landscape to set the undertones of what's happening in the plot um my favorite thing is um this is not so much landscape but it does happen up on Brokeback Mountain within the first couple of scenes is um you know that first night after they um kiss and sleep together uh, Heath Ledger goes back up on the mountain to check out the herd of sheep and finds that one of the sheep has been, um, you know, killed by a coyote. And to me, that was like the perfect imagery of like, oh, like innocence, like shattered, like innocence destroyed. Um, and so I think like, and then there's like the scene of them jumping off the cliff into the water. Like it, it's perfectly um, contrasted to like what's happening in their lives. So and it's beautiful, wonderful to look at. Goes well with the soundtrack. Definitely, and I, I picked up that moment too. I'm so glad you brought that up with the sheep yeah. getting killed. And and kind of to jump off of that, um, I feel like, so there's a conversation they have, and I don't remember if it's, I think it's after that they sleep together for the first time where they're talking about their parents. And mm -hmm. you know, uh, Jack's mom, or yeah, they said Jack's mom is Pentecostal and you know, Ennis's parents are Methodist. And he's trying to figure out what Pentecost means. And they said, I don't know. You know, like, I guess that's where we're all going to hell. And then, you know, the famous line, you may be a sinner, but I ain't yet had the opportunity. Um, yeah, that and, was like right before they got drunk. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was, I was just in, you know, I, I think that the religion aspect kind of comes up a little later when they want to go to like the church social or whatever. And you say, oh, that fire and brimstone crowd. I was just curious what you thought, you know, how this film kind of deals with that sense of like purity and how like how they feel like they need to kind of live by these almost like certain, I guess in this case, Christian ideals of what, you know, relationships would be and stuff, but how, and how they're kind of 
you know, dealing with that, but also wanting to like live their own lives in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely like, you know, whose life doesn't have some themes of like religion in it. Right. But I think obviously for them, it takes a much more personal tone and it just kind of weighs on top of like, um, you know, the pressure they feel to hide who they are and hide their relationship. Um, and they kind of, you know, make light of it um, in that conversation between the two of them. Um, but I think it's very interesting. This is obviously a spoiler. I hope that people who listen to this don't mind spoilers, but you know, at the end, um, uh, Heath Ledger's character goes back to Jack's parents who are very Pentecostal. And you see almost like a moment of understanding between him and the mom. And, you know, I wonder if it's almost like, at, at some point in the movie, you start kind of asking yourself, like, do they really have to, to hide this way? And maybe that's ignorant on my part, but you know, that movie goes into the eighties and in the eighties, people were starting to come out. To be fair, I think that was probably in like places like New York city and Los Angeles, not necessarily Wyoming and Texas, but, um, you know, maybe it didn't, they didn't need to, um, maybe it was kind of like their internal, uh, barriers. Do you know what I mean? Like their own kind of internalized. Yeah. I was just curious, do you think, you know, cause obviously Jack gets killed, right? He gets jumped at the end in the same way mm -hmm. the Earl and Rich story goes. Do you think they were too early? in a sense, you know, you mentioned kind of the eighties that was kind of more opening up a little bit, maybe not to Wyoming, like you were saying, but do you think in a way their relationship was too early timing wise? Yeah. I mean, that's the tragic thing is like, and people still get killed to be clear for being gay, like all over the world today. And that's horrible. But yeah, you, I think maybe in our minds, we're kind of like, it it was sort of acceptable like it was it was frowned upon but you wouldn't get killed for it so just to kind of like yeah I think they were too early because you think about it and it's like 20 years later they might have had a real chance um and it's heartbreaking especially when like uh Jack says like we should have been together like we could have been together I wanted to have a life together um and yeah just you know Maybe they were too late, too early, too early. Um, you know, another another part of this, and, and I think that this almost applies to any romance or romantic tragedy where there's a there's kind of a family on the side, but then the two main people are falling in love, is this strain on outside relationships, right? Now Alma in particular, you know, how she she sees them kissing, right? You know, the first mm -hmm. time and she kind of hides it, internalizes it for a little while, maybe even a couple of years, if I remember right. And then they end up getting divorced. And then, you know, at one point Jack says, you know, he can have his marriage over the phone basically because they don't even talk to each other that much. I was just curious what you thought of that aspect and how, you know, this secret relationship can take a toll on, on wives, on children, on other people in kind of the periphery. Yeah, it makes it almost, you know, so much sadder because it's like, it's one thing, like, it's almost like you're half-assing both relationships, right? Like both parts of your life. Um, I feel like, especially for Ennis and partially for Jack, you know, it was the kind of situation where it's like, okay, I'm not being a very good, like, husband and father to my wife and my children here, 
And also the only time I can see this person that I love is during these like once every two month camping trips. Like it's, it makes it all that much sadder because it's not like, you know, things just get really messy. And um, as much as you're like, yeah, Jack and Anna should be able to be together. It still doesn't change the fact that there is, you know, a wife whose husband was unfaithful to her and two girls who have a dad who can't keep work down because he keeps quitting to run off into the mountains. Um, and it's, and with Jack too, it's kind of like, you know, he obviously really loves his son and it's such an interesting dynamic with Jack's father-in-law and Hathaway's dad, who's like this big Texas guy. Um, and, you know, how um, Jack is kind of like, unhappy in that relationship and he's also unhappy in his other relationship um maybe there's a deeper meaning to that but to me it just looks like you know suffering on all sides yeah and, it, and you know it's interesting I, I found especially on this on this rewatch you know how so different Jack and Ennis are in a lot of ways you know um, Jack is kind of this freewheeling rodeo rodeo guy who's basically willing to take a lot of chances he he makes the first move in this relationship he he's the one that says you know I'm willing to drop everything and let's be together you know Ennis is more reserved Ennis doesn't you know talk much and you know, they had that one conversation early so that's the hell that's the most I've spoken in a year um, I was just curious what you thought of that dynamic and how in a lot of ways you know, maybe it's not, maybe it's too much to blame him per se, but in a lot of ways, Ennis's kind of barriers he puts up ends up kind of being the downfall of this relationship. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's hard because like, you know, Jack does get killed for the relationship. And that was, you know, Ennis was cautious because he saw when he was a, a boy, you know, what the local men did to the gay couple that was in his community um so I think it was very real for him I thought it was a very I thought it was a great dynamic one I'm amazed that like Heath Ledger's voice gets that low it's almost like Bradley Cooper in A Star is Born you're like I didn't know your voice could sound like that um so that was funny but um yeah I don't I don't know what to make of I mean I think they're very good together definitely um I think in the end you know Ennis kind of regrets not being more I think he realizes like truly how important that relationship was to Jack and how um like much Jack was willing to give of himself for that relationship and maybe Ennis feels a little bit guilty that he wasn't um you know able to give that much of himself um, towards the end. And I think that's kind of something, you know, with that last scene of him saying like, Jack, I swear, and the shirts, um, you know, I think there's kind of an implication that he's going to regret not, you know, maybe loving more fully when he had the chance. Do you think a lot of that is just based on fear? Because, you know, I feel like this motif that kind of Angley uses in a lot of this is this idea of protection and this idea of a bear, you know, sleeping in the tent to get out of the cold, you know, the sheep right. obviously protecting the sheep in a lot of ways, you know, when Jake or Jake, calling him Jake, Jack um, <laughs> hits, hits, you know, Ennis punches Ennis in the face and he starts bleeding. And of course the bloody shirt, as you mentioned there. Yeah. And, you know, Ennis even 
when they when they get down off rope back the first time, you know, they part ways and Ennis immediately starts throwing up, right? Because he almost can't take it. He can't hold it in in a lot of ways. Are yeah. You, how, how much do you feel like fear kind of plays into that and how he's he doesn't really know what to do? Yeah, I mean, fear is like everywhere in this movie. You're They're scared of how much they like love each other because they realize how dangerous it is. They're scared of losing one another um, because that is so internally painful. They're scared of people finding out. They're scared of, um, you know, what this means for themselves, like with, you know, the internalized shame about it. I think that it's like, I also would be throwing up if I were a gay cowboy in 1962. I would be fucking terrified um, of what I was feeling and experiencing. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a huge motivating factor in so much of this. I think it's, you know, why they do so much of what they do and, um, you know, why they run off to the mountains every chance they get. You know, we you brought up that that great moment kind of at the end there when um you know Ennis is you know the final line of this film Jack I swear he he's got the postcard next to the bloody shirt but before mm-hmm. that is arguably the most famous part in this film is the you know I wish I knew how to quit you you know mm-hmm. that whole breakdown of um you know Jack lamenting how they weren't able to kind of fully pursue this relationship you know talk about going down to Mexico and how they how you know and it's just and it's can't come back till November and all that so I was just curious what you thought of that moment and how it kind of exemplified what you're talking about earlier just the timing of this was so off and how these these brief trips up to Brokeback just weren't enough to kind of quench that love I guess in a certain way yeah I mean you know it gets to a point no matter, I think that was their breaking point, you know, and they started, you know, whether they say it or not, I think there was a realization that that relationship was really painful and really difficult to be in, but it's almost like an addiction. Um, Arguably, an addiction is not illicit though. You you know what I'm trying to say. you know, they, they can't give it up, but they understand that it's like painful and untenable and they're fighting because of it and they're ruining their, you know, small amount of time together. And, um, yeah, it was, you know, it was really interesting to me was when, was it, um, Jack went up to go visit Ennis after his divorce. Right. And Jack comes up really excited. He's like, I just heard, this is great. We're going to be together. And Ennis kind of shuts him down. And, um, you know, Jack like drives back down South and just keeps going past Texas and New Mexico. And the implication is that he finds like a male sex worker and has sex with him. And it was really interesting to me that like, I think that was brought up later and it was almost like Jack was cheating, um, with, you know, by going down to Mexico. Um, and so even, but like not, you know, being with his wife, right. And so I thought that was a really interesting um, contrast that they drew. But um, no, that was just, you can tell that there's like a breaking point of like, we should have been together. We should have tried harder. Um, And I think Jack's being frustrated and wants to like leave him, wants wants Ennis to try harder. But he's saying like, I'm going to keep doing this, but you're hurting me this way but I can't stop doing it. So you're just going to keep hurting me. Yeah. And I, and I think there's even the implication that 
Jack uh, might be pursuing a side thing with uh, David Harbour's character, Randall, um, you know, at the dance as well as they kind of talked about going away. Um, right. You know, there, there's another moment, you know, obviously throughout this film, Ennis kind of had a side thing with Cassie, Linda Cardellini's character a little bit, but mm -hmm. there's a moment near the end um, where uh, his daughter, uh, Ennis's daughter visits him in his trailer and, you know, tells him that he, she's about to be married. Uh, mm -hmm. And, there, there's a there's a cutback to Heath Ledger and there's just this sincere and deep pain in his eyes. And it's almost like he's realizing that, you know, he's obviously happy for his daughter, but there's this pain of like that love is something he can never really have now because Jack is dead. I was just curious what you thought of that moment and kind of, I guess, how that kind of, you know, sums up the film in a lot of ways, that longing for something that maybe isn't quite achievable. Yeah, it's definitely like it, it sums up and it's sad. Um, I I didn't catch that as much with like the daughter, but that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, it, you know, you you the ending scene is Ennis in his trailer and he's all alone and he's going bald and he's poor and you know his daughter treks all the way out to come find him. And says hey I'm getting married and he you know is happy for her but it's like you know I think she seems really happy and she says we're in love and it sounds like you know to me it's like Ennis can ever say like I also had a great love like you know when you are in love with somebody you're excited about it and you want to share it and he's been forced to you know hide that his whole life and now it's gone and he can't even openly grieve about it that's the most, you know, difficult part, I think, is that you can't even, um, yeah, you can't even grieve properly for this person you've loved for 20 years. So yeah, it definitely, again, just puts into contrast, like, how painful it is for Annis and Jack. When it comes down to it, Laura says the craft and care that went into Brokeback Mountain sets it apart from other movies. Because so much of television and things we consume right now I feel like are very cheap and fast and surface level and this is as like raw humanity as you can get and if you want to see you know two not even two three four like best acting performances this is the place to go I mean it is it is the kind of thing to like turn off the lights turn off your phone and like absorb it it's, it's one of those shows, so can't recommend it enough. Next up, a more lighthearted approach, although I guess it depends on who you ask, to a relationship and a man in disarray. My name's Jacob Douglas, and my favorite movie is Modern Romance. Jacob Douglas, a fellow journalist and podcaster, says he approached the work of Albert Brooks a little backwards. Um, one of my favorite comedians, Tim Heidecker, um, uh, Tim and Eric's awesome show is kind of his claim to fame. Um, he was also in Bridesmaids. He had zero lines. I always like to throw that one out there. Um, he uh, he was plugging Albert Brooks a lot during the pandemic. He's like, my family and I watched all his movies. And I knew him as the voice of Marlon from Finding Nemo, which I think is like what our generation knows him from. Either that or Drive, which, you know, even then... Um, Marlon is the more popular character for sure. Um, so I was like, oh, you know, Defending Your Life is on HBO Max, um, has Meryl Streep in it. Like, that'll be a good quarantine watch. I fell in love with that movie. Um, and just, I relate to Brooks's characters 
in the way that they're all very insecure to a point where, and, and Ari Aster actually wrote an essay about this for uh, Criterion this year, and it's incredible. You know, if you haven't read, I'm, you're nodding. It looks like you've read it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I agree with him where, you know, all of his characters are so insecure and scared of making the wrong decision where they end up, indecision is the move. Um, and defending your life, that's like a, a main, you know, plot point. That, that is the theme of that movie is the indecision in his life leads him to where he is. Um, and I fell in love with that. And then from there, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go back and watch them all in order. So I watched Real Life and then Modern Romance um, and then the rest of his, his catalog. Um, and I was particularly drawn to this movie. Um, and specifically because I was, I myself was going through like a bit of a breakup at the time. And this is like, this is the best breakup movie. <laughs> it's just, it just is. I think it like captures how weird and sad and like ultimately how th that range of emotions drives people to the brink of insanity almost. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, it was at the time when I first watched it, I was like, wow, this is like super relatable. I understand why he's, you know, why he's so sad. And the more I watched it, the further I got away from those feelings, I was like, wow, Robert is a fucked up individual. <laughs> like, that guy has some real issues. He needs to go to therapy and like figure this out. Um, but yeah, I was, I was just like really drawn to the themes of this movie and also the comedy. I mean, it's hilarious. That scene with, um, with Brooks's brother, Bob Einstein, which, you know, RIP, that was a big loss last year, um, is so funny. And the, the, when he's running and the one, two, three, I don't even miss her, gets up and runs straight to the phone to give her a call. You know, um, I, I just fell in love. It be, instantly became one of my favorite movies I've ever seen. Which is quite a thing to say for someone who told me early on in our conversation, he's obsessed with movies. You know, from a young age, I can remember my parents kind of just sticking us in front of a TV screen or like putting us, you know, taking us to the movies. Um, this is, it's always a dumb story, but like my first movie I ever remember seeing in theaters was Snow Dogs with Cuba Gooding Jr. And I threw up halfway through. I didn't even get to finish the movie. So I like, I guess I got on the wrong foot with movies, but no, I mean, I love, it's a, it's a vital part of my life. Like my friends and I, it's like, all we care about and talk about i'm in like several different group chats with different people or pretty much most of what we talk about is like movie we talk about the industry what's coming out you know that's blockbusters indie movies you know i think like um we got like up for the next noah bombach uh like it was like rumored that it was gonna have greta gerwig and adam driver in it and we were like oh holy shit like yeah so we were you know it's it's pretty like um integral to who I am as a person. I, I love movies. <laughs> Definitely. Um, you know, and looking at modern romance, it's kind of two things. So, uh, you know, in one sense, it's a romantic comedy. In another sense, it is a pretty entertaining movie about the movies, if you will. Uh, so I just, for, I first wanted to ask, what is your relationship to romantic comedies? I mean, are those movies you seek out in particular, or is it more just Albert Brooks stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I think, I, I love the, the romantic comedy genre, even like, like when Harry met Sally, um, I'm, I'm a, you know, like Francis Ha is less of a romantic comedy about 
you know, a, a man and a woman in a relationship, but it's like a, a romantic comedy about, you know, finding yourself. Um, and Modern Romance is a very unconventional romantic comedy as well. It's it's kind of about a toxic relationship and the insecurities that, you know, I think most people have in, in, in romance. Um, but no, I love the romantic comedy genre. Um, I, I grew up with... M- my, my dad's a farmer, so he was out working a lot. So a lot of the times it would be my sister and my mother and, and I, and, you know, um, how to lose a guy in 10 days. Um, uh, there, a really deep cut one, but uh, what, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, I think is what it's called. It's like Ashton Kutcher and um, Cameron Diaz, like very, like these e-news um, romantic comedies that play all the time. I grew up watching those. So it was kind of like ingrained into my movie um, palette early on. And I think like, as you grow up, you start to evolve in like what you look for in these romantic comedies and you look for maybe more mature depictions of relationships, which I think in a weird way, modern romance is very juvenile and very mature at the same time. You know, as I kind of mentioned before, you know, modern romance obviously deals with um, that kind of inside baseball, if you will look into like movie making process. I'm just curious. So personally for me, you know, just kind of, being a film fan and cinephile, whatever you want to call it, just kind of those movies about the movies always interest me just to kind of see how the sausage is made sort of thing. I'm just curious for you, what is your interest level in kind of those movies about the movies? Oh, I love that. And in modern romance specifically, there are some of the, some of the best, I think, about the movie scenes. And actually in his first film, the one before this one, real life, I think is even, even better when it comes to like the movie producers, like there's a comment in that movie and he's like, Albert, I got two words for you. James Kahn, <laughs> a movie about real people. That's one of my favorite lines in his movies. But this movie, like the, um, the Foley artist scene is just incredible. When they're in there and he's like, pull me up the Hulk. And he, it's the Hulk screaming. It doesn't match at all. And then, you know, uh, Albert Brooks gets up there and is carrying the jar and is running. Like, that's so cool because, you know, that's something that the average moviegoer doesn't understand happens. Like I remember when I learned about foleying, it was in high school and it blew my mind. I was like, wait, you're telling me they don't actually like record them shooting the arrows. Um, so yeah, I think like in a way it's educational. It's like making fun of the process too, in a really smart way that, I mean, Brooks has deconstructed film in his movies, you know, in all eight of them. Um, so I love that part of it, you know, just them like, cutting a scene together um and like splicing the tape you know that that's so cool because now if you were to make this movie right it'd just be a dude in an edit bay who had been up for hours and it's like on his third red bull (laughs) desperately like in premiere trying to cut these files down super small so it's it's incredibly nostalgic and like holds up so well because i think that's like a a piece of the industry that we all kind of like long for in a way. From 1981, Modern Romance, written by Albert Brooks and Monica McGowan-Johnson and directed by Brooks, follows overbearing neurotic film editor Robert Cole, played by Brooks, who has to be one of the most indecisive people depicted on screen. He opens the film by breaking up with his girlfriend Mary, played by Catherine Harold, and spends the rest of the film in physical and emotional anguish over whether or not they're actually meant to be together. It's a film about jealousy and emotional immaturity, which, according to Brooks, even partly inspired Stanley Kubrick to make Eyes Wide Shut in 1999. And, you know, I I think it helps also how, like, 
I guess economical like his run his movies are you know like this is only like a 90 what 94 95 minute um watch you know it's pretty quick i mean but you know at the same time there's like as much as albert brooks is such a gifted comedian he's really poking at some truths here so i mean what about modern romance in particular makes it so rewatchable for you i mean is there is there something about it in particular that you want to kind of go back and revisit time and time again yeah you make a good point about him getting at real truths um and i think great truly great comedy comes from reality and pain um there's nothing funny about someone succeeding but there's something very funny about failure um for whatever reason um and i think the one thing i always come back to with this movie is just how rich he is as a character robert um i think there's as much as people don't want to admit it, a lot of what he feels is something we've all felt. Now, whether we act on it is I think what differentiates um, a a sort of like villainous character from, you know, just a normal person. Um, And I think we've all felt like maybe something wasn't working in a relationship. So you decide to end it. And within the week, you feel terrible about it for him. It's within the hour (laughs) And and you, and you hate it. And, you know, What's so clever about this movie, and every time I watch this, this thought hits me around a similar scene, and it's when he's at the store trying to find the stuffed animal to give back to to Mary, um, and it always hits me. It's like he broke up with her. It Mary didn't dump Robert. He dumped her, and is obsessed with her. Like she, you know, broke his heart. And to me, that's it's it's always so clever and. It's weird. It always hits me at the same point. Um, and I, and I love that flip on the genre, right? Um, it's not, it's not like, um, you know, high fidelity where this guy's kind of moping around cause he got dumped and, you know, I could go on about John Cusack's character in that movie. I think he's a little bit of a pretentious asshole. Um, but Robert does, he does all the wrong things and somehow still gets her back. Um, and and in the end like the, the end credit scenes where or the end credit titles where they're like they were married they got divorced they're engaged again and they're in couples counseling <laughs> like um this this constant cycle of of toxicity that i think tends to fester in abusive relationships is something that is still happening today like like you said there's so much truth in this movie and to me that's 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 what i prefer in in film I want to see a story that has themes that I think are applicable to just about anyone. Um, That to me is great comedy. That to me is great romance. Um, And I think Brooks blends them perfect, blends them perfectly. You're kind of mentioning how you kind of discovered his work, you know, through Tim Heidecker and kind of, you know, Criterion or what have you. Um, Do you have a ballpark figure for how many times you've seen this film? (sighs) I think I've seen this five times. Okay. So five times in under a year. Um, Cause I've, okay. I saw this in this would have been in September. Okay. Gotcha. So I, I've, yeah, I've been a, I've been a modern romance fiend in the last, <laughs> well, cause it started and I watched it the first time. I was like, wow, this is really great. I want to watch it again to see how I feel. Watch it again. I was like, this is one of my favorite movies. And then from there, it's like, like you said, you know, our generation, I think like we don't, all of my friends didn't know who he was. They, they, they knew his name, but they didn't know his work. Um, and I was super passionate about just like 
getting people to watch this because so i was like no like this is this is like film history to me like this is something i feel like you have to watch to understand how he influenced comedy and the breakup of the genre and you know ari aster credits midsummer to this movie which is these two movies cannot be any more different in you know the genre and the characters and the approach but the themes are very similar um so i watched this i think two more times with friends and then i watched it i watched it again to refresh for this so yeah i think five times um i want to kind of dive into this story a little bit here you know i I think it's an interesting and even kind of a bold way to open this film with the breakup scene at the beginning right you know in the restaurant um and now he calls it you know this no-win situation and, and Vietnam in this exactly, exactly <laughs> Vietnam in this you know and he, he goes on and on even later about you know we fought and fought and then we had great sex I mean yeah. just what do you what do you think of even just how we're kind of introduced to this relationship and how you know clearly these two people should not be together oh yeah. but for some reason he keeps going back to it yeah I <clears throat> I've developed a theory for this movie and it's that Robert keeps going back to Mary because Robert knows that he, that no one else is going to put up with shit. Um, and she does for some reason. Um, and, and, and Mary doesn't have shit. So she, she deserves better. Uh, I don't know why she, again, that kind of like, this is sort of an abusive relationship where she keeps coming back to. Um, but you know, at the beginning of the movie, he says, there's 10 million people in this city alone. How hard can it be to find the perfect person? And that word perfect is the crux of his problems. You know, he's looking per, for perfection. He's finding issues in this relationship where issues don't lie. And, you know, we're given nuggets of that as the movie unfolds, because I think that's what he wants to happen. I think he wants you by the end of this. It's similar to how I view like the Sopranos and Breaking Bad do this over a longer period where they the, the creators are slowly trying to tell you that you know, Tony Soprano and Walter White are not good people. You're rooting for them because of the main character of this, but they're not good people. And that's how I feel about Robert too. As the events of the movie unfold, you slowly start to realize this is not a guy I want to side with. <laughs> um, he's, he's emotionally manipulative. He is very protective in a, in a pretty toxic way. Um, you know, he makes her leave the party early um, when she's there to have a good time. Like she just does a line in the bathroom and then makes her leave. Like, it was a pretty, it was a pretty big waste, if you ask me. Um, and I, and I, I love the way that unfolds. I love the way that we see Robert start to get, you know, just so paranoid and nitpicky. Um, again, that that perfect person that that just truly doesn't exist for anyone. You know, that's not what love is. And his mom, you know, in the phone call is like, you know, you got to work at it. And he's like, will you side with me? You know, you can't take criticism. Um, he's a very toxic individual, but again, like all things that I think when we're hurting, we can relate to. Um, And that's what I think makes the narrative of this movie and his character so appealing. Whether they're together or not, it's made apparent that Robert needs some serious help. Even after dumping Mary, he continues driving past her house in hopes of seeing her again. I mean, what do you kind of make? Because it's it's funny. I feel like part of it is Albert Brooks' sensibilities and how we're kind of rooting for him in that respect, just because it is Albert Brooks. But, you know, at the same time, like, Robert is a stalker in a lot of ways. Yeah. And he's very high maintenance. I mean, I know you kind of mentioned already, but, like, how does that kind of add another dynamic to, like, almost where it, like, reverts into, like, you're almost feeling bad for him in a lot of ways, I feel like. 
Yeah, <clears throat> you do. I think you do feel it is. It is a sad character, <laughs> you know. You like when he's talking to his bird, <laughs> and, you know, kind of, kind of, uh, you know, his assistant editor kind of. It's not explicitly said, but it's pretty implied. I think he's like pretty fucking annoyed with him, and it's like, you know, you're. He is the lead editor on the project, but the assistant editor does like all of the work. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think you do feel bad for him um, in a way because his life without Mary, weirdly enough, is worse than it is with her. <laughs> um, and it's pretty bad with her. Um, yeah, and I think you made a good point about, I think Brooks in this role is so charismatic that it's hard to not root for him. And, and charisma goes a, lot, a long way. I think like, this is a, a completely extreme example, but like, you know, Ted Bundy, big serial killer, murdered a lot of people, very charismatic guy. I think a lot of people who are manipulative like this use charisma to their advantage. And I think Robert does that too. Another, another interesting thing, you know, I brought up insecurities a couple of times here. I, I mean, one of, one of the Albert Brooks trademarks, as you know, is, you know, that, that neurosis, that, that neurotic uh, erratic behavior that with all his characters, whether it is in his own stuff, James L. Brooks stuff and what have you, you know, he has, he has a line here that says, you know, I hate the word paranoid, but it applies here. And of course he, <laughs> yeah. wasn't, he wasn't necessarily talking about himself more about the situation, but I think it definitely applies to Robert in a lot of ways. I mean, how do you feel like his neurosis and like, you know, erratic behavior kind of plays a role throughout this story, especially I feel like maybe this is just my reading of it, but you know, I feel like his editing job in a lot of ways plays into some of his indecisiveness, plays into some of his, you know, like insecurities in a lot of ways of like, oh, oh, I'm right. Even though if the director has a vision for it, it's gotta be my thing. You know, I'm just curious what you thought of kind of his, the Albert Brooks neurotic touch, I guess, for this film. Yeah, oddly I am, I am attracted to, to neurotic central characters. Um, I, I'm not gonna watch Woody Allen movies anymore, but when I did watch them, that's, you know, a big reason why I was attracted to his roles. Um, you know, in Annie Hall, he's like, I think he is like the neurotic archetype. Like that's what you're going for. Um, and yeah, I think there's something, there's something so great about an asshole suffering. It's just funny, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like just, just a guy who's kind of a prick to everyone around him get in the shaft you know like that's if this movie were they have a great relationship he's a he's one of the best film editors in the world and nothing happens it's a bad movie it's boring but when he's breaking up with someone going through pain honestly probably not a great film editor like the way he collaborates with the director is like very bad. It's not a collaborative process. He's kind of annoyed by James L. Brooks character, which by the way, genius to cast him in this role. He's, he's hilarious. Um, you know, um, you know, nothing. I love that. There's character in that. <laughs> Great line. Um, and yeah, I think that that like is the, the crux of the comedy in this movie is, is that neurosis and it's, it's, why we continue to watch movies like this. this is why people still watch Woody Allen movies. It's why people love Noah Baumbach. Like, you know, the, these kind of mumblecore movies that are popular, like Joe Swanberg and, um, you know, Mark Duplass, like these guys, like I think um, people like it for that neurosis. There's also kind of a point near the end where um, he's asking about, you know, the difference between movie love and real love. I'm just curious in your, in your perspective, how would you, 
kind of delineate between those two, between movie love and real love. I think it's a major point this movie's trying to make. Because um, Robert, Robert believes in movie love. He says he doesn't, but he does. Um, all the things he's saying, like, who else would drive all throughout the night for you? The stalking thing. Like, in real life, that's stalking. In the movies, that's love. That's romance. That, that's dedication, right? Um, I think the difference between movie love and real love is that real love is messy. Real love is there, there are pa past experiences, there are feelings that are involved, there are um, fears of the future. Like in a movie, we have a we have a two hour runtime we got to get through, and most of these, and, and they got to be together at the end. Or sometimes they don't, but for the most part, they do. Um, so there's a really quick resolution of problems. Um, in real love, it's there. It is not like that. There is not a clear answer to your problems sometimes, and. A lot of times that's just, you got to compromise and it may not be perfect, but you got to move forward um, or you don't, <laughs> which, you know, happens sometimes. You know, I think I, I look at a movie like uh, Manchester by the Sea, which this isn't like a romance movie, but I think you can learn, a, pull a lot from it because it is a movie that I think so grounded in grief as a realistic thing. Um, like, you know, that movie, it just ends. And these are people that have to live with this. Um, and that's the difference to me between movie love and real love, you know? a conflict that you have a year ago that's not fully resolved can boil and fester a year later and in, in, in the movies that's just not the story they're trying to tell like movies are meticulously crafted things and life is not like that at all <laughs> um so yeah don't get the two confused definitely because i've been around people who who think love is like the movies. And I think those are the people that usually end up disappointed. When I asked Jacob to pitch this movie to someone who hasn't seen it, he first pointed to the brevity. Because of our, our TikTok brains, the first thing I would say is it's 90 minutes. You know, you're not watching The Irishman. Uh, this isn't Seven Samurai. You know, you're it's, it's a short movie. So, you know, you can kill an hour and a half with it. That'd be the first thing I'd say, which is sad. That shouldn't be the first thing I have to say, but it typically is like one of the things. And then, of course, the lasting impact of Brooks on today's entertainment landscape. You know, this is a this is an influential comedic actor and writer. Um, you know, he was part of the original SNL cast. You know, technically he wasn't in the cast, but made these um, shorts for the show. And um, this was someone who. I think is, is, is influential on a lot of the comedy we made that is being made today. This sort of Eric Andre, Tim Heidecker, like alt comedy scene. Um, I think you can, there is a lineage that, that starts with Brooks. And, and, and then I would say, if you like, if you like romantic comedies, if you like movies about, you know, kind of this neurotic main character, this is, this is kind of that genre done extreme at an extremely high level and it it has a lot to say about relationships that i think is actually accurate and valuable um you know I, it's bad to say but like if any of my friends went through through a breakup i would be like you should watch this <laughs> like, i would say because you know maybe it's going bad but you're not this guy so it could be much worse
My name is Jake Aldacoffee, and my favorite movie is Her. When I first found Jake Aldacoffee, another aspiring filmmaker on Letterboxd, his name looked familiar. So I had to ask him about it up top. Okay, so I have to, I, I just want to ask this now and just get out of the way right now. Um, you are Alan Alda's grandson, right? Uh, yes, I am. Yes. Okay, gotcha. And so that kind of plays into my first question here. Um, well, how would you describe uh, your relationship to film kind of from a more general perspective? Um, yeah, so like, like I've always obviously gotten my, uh, my love of film through him. Like I don't think I would have ever uh, really found my love uh, of movies through him. Um, it wasn't for him, but uh, yeah, so I just sort of, uh, I think it's always just sort of, uh, just sort of getting that perspective um, from learning about movies that he's taught me and sort of uh, made my love for it even greater. Jake told me he was initially deciding between Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story, a film we'll talk about later, and her for this pick. And given that Joaquin Phoenix is one of his favorite actors and Spike Jones is one of his favorite directors, what he landed on makes a lot of sense. Yeah, well, I think, first of all, her is my favorite movie. Uh, and then, uh, and it's, just, it's just a movie I think I feel like I can connect with the most or uh, just sort of, you know, and one of the movies I've probably seen the most now. And so it's always hard for me to put into words why exactly it, it connects with me. Um, it's just sort of that, you know, sometimes when you watch a movie and you just sort of have that kind of, you know, sort of that bubbly feeling, you know, sort of like a mushy feeling like you know, in your heart and your stomach, just that you sort of can't describe when, uh, after seeing a movie. And I always get that with her. And I've seen her like a couple dozen times at least now. And it just, each time I watch the movie, I still get that same, that feeling as if I watched it for the first time. Um, and it just, it just, you know, it just connects with me in a way that I really haven't really felt with any other movie before. Right. You said said you've seen it a couple dozen times now. What about it um, makes it so rewatchable for you? I don't know. I think it's just, it's part of just that it's it's just, it's it's so flawless to me. It just doesn't feel like, you know, this like I've never really seen a flaw with it. And then each time I watch it, I, I always stumble across something that I haven't, I didn't know this before, before another reeling, uh, which is so rare, especially after you watch it like a couple dozen times. And it, um, and it just, yeah, it's, it's just everything about it just sort of comes together so nicely in the movie, you know, with the cinematography, the writing, the acting, directing, just, just, just feels so rare. So it's just, I always wanted to come, you know, appreciate that so much each time I watch it. And, uh, and just sort of, uh, and it's just sort of, the movie always gives me sort of a, you know, such a nice wholesome feeling every time I, I come across I watch it. From 2013, Her, written and directed by Spike Jones, follows a lonely man in the not-so-distant future named Theodore Twombly, played by Joaquin Phoenix, who is reeling from his impending divorce. He's also the best writer at his job, the beautiful handwritten letters company. Anywho, Theodore Impulse buys a new operating system that's designed to be customizable for each user, But as he starts talking to his OS Samantha, voiced by Scarlett Johansson, he develops romantic feelings. Nominated for five Oscars, including a win for Best Original Screenplay, Her is an unconventional love story that comments on our connection with technology and shows how Theodore works through his depression and loneliness. Um, You know, as as we're kind of introduced to this story, you know, this idea of, I guess, these these like secondhand emotions, I guess, if you will, 
of um, at the beautiful handwritten letters.com. What would you think of just opening the story this way and kind of into this, I guess, futuristic uh, setting? Yeah, it really, because for me in movies, it's always you know, the biggest, the biggest and most important parts of the movie is, you know, the opening shot and then the ending. And, um, and Spike Jones really tackled that so well with this and uh, uh, her, because it's sort of, you know, we just opened up on this very close shot um, of, of Joaquin Phoenix. And, and you just don't really know what's going on. Like you think, you know, you think it's like, you know, you know, the letters for himself or something. And, and then you realize that it's, uh, you know, that he's, he's a part of a letter writing company. And it's just, it's, it, it sort of opens up to like the world itself, that the world is not really the world that we know just yet. Um, and that, you know, it's, uh, it is futuristic and, and, and it also just sort of tells about shows already shows, shows us so much about Theodore and, and, and who, who he is, who he is because he, he, um, you know, that he, you know, is, he's writing like a love letter uh, and it just sort of already shows, uh, his soft side and just sort of how much he sort of understands other people mm-hmm. as well. And, um, and, and, and and there's a scene later on in her where he's talking to Samantha and they observe these like this couple um, uh, at, at like a mall or something. And, and, uh, and Theodore, and so Samantha like basically asks her, you know, asks Theodore like, uh, how, how do you describe this, these people? And Theodore basically without, without missing a beat would like describe, you know, you know, the, the, uh, you know this, this guy's relationship with this woman and, and her kids and stuff. And, and it just sort of shows that Theodore can really grasp on who uh, on, on how he understands who people you know who people are, which is by looking at them. So you know there there's a couple different aspects of this movie just kind of getting in the mindset of um, of Theodore in this movie. You know the first I want to kind of tackle here is that that grief and that uh, sense of loss of a relationship, right? You know I think he says at one point later in the movie to Samantha, sometimes I feel like I've I felt everything I'm ever gonna feel. Right. You know, he's going, he's, there's these flashbacks uh, to his relationship with Catherine. You know, initially we start with the, as, as, as in any relationship, you start with the good moments, you know, the honeymoon phase. And, you know, he's yeah. holding off on signing the divorce paper because he feel he likes the feeling of being married, but not necessarily maybe the relationship that he's in. Um, just even from that standpoint, what did you think, or how did you think this movie kind of dealt with? Uh, that grief and you know the loss and the dissolution of um, of this marriage and this relationship. Yeah, so it's like it's weird because you know he, I think he's clearly in love with um, with Rooney Mara's character Catherine, and um, and he just knows that the relationship's over and that there's like nothing more that they can do, and it's just sort of that grief of trying to get over that because you know it's sometimes that's like the toughest thing you can do. Sometimes. That grief is it's like almost like a grieving of death because you know it's something's uh, never coming back. Um, you know the, the love that you had felt is not going to be there anymore, um, and so you sort of have to sometimes grieve that like a death, and and that's what uh, you know it seems like Joaquin, uh, you know what Theodore uh, uh, did um, have to do because it's just you know sort of that that feelings of just always you know depressed, just not really not even really wanting to get over it, you know. Um, and, and when you try, you just can't, uh, and it's just sort of, uh, and he just sort of, you know, and, and, and that's, that's typical, you know, it happens to a lot of us 
uh, just sort of, you know, because I feel like we all you know, have had that one person that we either liked and you know, for whatever reason, it just never worked out, whether, you know, you know, we tried, you know, being with them and it just didn't work out or they didn't like us back or something. And you just have to, you know, it's always that grieving process you just have to go through. And, um, and so I think, you know, and, and for some of us, it takes longer than others. And it's just, uh, for Theodore, he just sort of, uh, he sort of needed something to, to help him get over that grief, you know, it's you know, almost like a replacement. And I think he sort of uh, was finding that with, with Samantha was sort of his, you know, his, his replacement for that. And part of that process, you brought it up earlier, but I wanted to touch on it again. Part of that process is going on that blind date uh, with Olivia Wilde, you know, and she has that line where, you know, I think they're like making out on the balcony or whatever. And she says, uh, are you going to like, are you going to call me again? I can't let you waste my time at this age. You know, what what do you think of that moment? And just that, again, you know, I feel like it's just another stage in that processing of, um, of grief. Yeah, because, yeah, because I think in that moment, Theodore was not ready to move on. He was not, he's still, you know, and that which happens when you're, when you're trying to move on with someone, the first few dates never go well because you're just, you're still just so caught up with the last person you were with. And, you know, most likely they're on your mind the whole time and, um, and it just sucks. And, and so um, with, yeah, so with that moment, he just sort of realized, you know, I'm not ready for this. I just don't want to uh, really dive into anything serious yet. Uh, you know, I still, think about Catherine all the time and all the time. And, and so I think he just sort of, uh, re- you know, realized that and he just sort of, and, and then sort of shot himself in the foot by uh, going on this date with this woman, basically. Yeah, and, um, and you know, it kind of, I feel like the culmination of at least this portion of his story, you know, comes in that lunch with Catherine, right? You know, they, they come to uh, sign the divorce papers. And I think even Samantha asked him beforehand, like, oh, is that usually done in person? He's like, you know, I feel like we were married together. We should get divorced together, right? You know, and there's that really, that there's that interesting, I guess, butting heads notion of, you know, uh, growing together versus growing apart in a marriage, you know, the expectations that we feel on that. And, you know, the lunch with Catherine, as we see, doesn't go so well, right? You know, she says, makes me very sad. You can't handle real emotions. And, um, and, you know, the, it really kind of details, like, just putting it out there that Theodore, you know, he has some, uh, some issues and some, I guess, some things he needs to work with as far as his relations, which is with intimacy, right, you know, and handling those emotions, you know, what did you think of that lunch, that, that lunch scene with Catherine, and just that idea of, you know, Theodore needing to work with, I guess, some quote unquote intimacy, intimacy issues. Yeah, so like with Catherine, that was the first time we really actually like see her uh, in person because like we see flashbacks of her, but we never, but that's always through Theodore's perspective. And it's always usually mostly the, the happy moments and stuff of, you know, when you were enjoying life. Um, and so this is the first time we actually like see her in the present. And so um, I just found that sort of interesting to sort of see her there and then, and then just sort of, uh, and we never really get a full sense of at the time of of um, what happened, you know, like what why, why things didn't work, and so I think it was just sort of interesting to sort of see their their um, relationship in that sense because you can see when they look at each other that they that there's still that there's a lot of history with, between them, and that 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 while they're they have grown apart, there's still that sort of sense of you know that they still care about each other. Um, uh, when they when they sort of you know they sort of give themselves sort of that side glance of just sort of like. You know, like I care about you. you know, I don't love you, but I, I still really care about you. 
and um, and and I think that was that's that was sort of an interesting approach. But then uh, I think that Catherine, like she, I think clearly had has had already moved on. Um, rather than you know, the, and she knows that Theodore is still sort of stuck in this this, this place of just sort of grief and loneliness, and and that, that I think that sort of has bothered her that he just wants wants her to move on. Um, so at first, when she heard that he was, you know, dating someone or seeing someone, that you know, I think that was that she thought that was a really good thing for him, um, you know, a good step. Um, until she found it was an OS, and she thought, you know, it just sort of still in this place of just that he just, you know, almost like they sort of given up type of, type of sense. Mm. You know, we put it off long enough. I want to get to the Samantha relationship. You know, the world's first artificially intelligent operating system, OS1, right? You know, that individualization process, um, you know, that that idea of, um, well, first of all, before we even get to that, I'm curious what your thoughts and how this film portrays people's, I, I think addiction is too too harsh, but the people's relationship with tech and people's relationship and that, you know, that bond that they may have with technology. Yeah, so I sort of, when I, uh, I think I remember reading, like, uh, when the movie first came out, that this is, I suspect Jones said that this takes place, like, you know, almost like 15 minutes in the future, or 15 minutes in the future, or something like that, uh, but how it's, it's, this could happen, like, any time, basically, um, because it's, you know, the world obviously seems more futuristic, but, you know, this kind of technology could come out sometime. Yeah, so it's sort of interesting, because, you know, in the movie, really everyone is has that sort of device you know um and and everyone's in their own little world uh with it uh and you know like you see all these people like no one's ever you know it's rare for something you see someone like interacting with each other um you know in the background and uh everyone you know basically talks to themselves basically with the earpiece in their, in, their, in their ear and that's just normal you know you, you know if you see that now with it you know right now just uh with you know just with the earpiece and stuff you might think like oh that person might be crazy i don't know um but um but yeah, it's just sort of, you know, a normal thing, and, and everyone sort of relies on this these technologies, and it's you know it's just sort of the case. In, I feel like now, you know, uh, as well, because it's just sort of you know we all rely on, on our phones or, or whatever, you know, like that. You know, if we go uh, you know a day with our without our phones, I feel like we'd all go crazy. But um, and and you know that's basically the case in this world where everyone just sort of. You know, technology is just a part of uh, the way we live, um, and uh, and um, and just sort of becomes very apparent with uh, with you know the operating system, which basically just does everyone's lives for them. You know, reads our emails. You know, does our you know helps us go into our daily routines. Yeah. No. And and you know another element kind of of this film is uh, the, the, I guess, the desire for empathy, right? You know, and you know, Theo, he says he's this lonely man writing notes. You know, one day he could, be, he could be his own favorite writer just depending on his mindset or whatever. You know, Amy's, Amy's documentary, you know, about spending a third of our life in sleep and how we like spend our time with each other just by ourselves, you know, and just, and just how even like you mentioned earlier when, when they see that older cu- or that couple with their kids, you know, he says, I imagine how deeply they've fallen in love or how much heartbreak they've been through. Um, and, you know, even just, even just when Amy and Charles split up, right. You know, Theo talking it through with her, how did you feel like this film kind of showcase, you know, especially on the lighter side and kind of talking through these uh, situations, just that idea of empathy. 
Yeah, so like Theodore, I feel like is you know we show that he's very empathetic because like I sort of touched on before about how how he just sort of sees people and he just sort of understands them and, and who they are, uh, which I guess he sort of needs to be a, uh, a letter writer, you know, his, for his job and stuff. And it just sort of shows that you know he's really good at this and and you know, it's just sort of interesting that in that aspect because you know I feel like in the world nowadays at least we sort of lack empathy a lot of us. Um, and and or we sort of you know fake it like we sort of fake empathy with each other but um this film sort of and, and i feel like that's sort of somewhat the case with all the other characters in the movie i feel like they so, somewhat lack empathy and then, then there's theodore who just sort of he sort of understands you know every person and and you know like, like with Catherine, like she did not understand why he would ever talk to an os you know and she sort of sort of uh, and just judged him and just didn't really see where he was coming from or felt where what he was feeling. And, you know, the only other person who really had that sort of empathy was, you know, Chris Pratt, sort of, you know, his, his character was sort of like very carefree, just sort of very understanding of just sort of, you know, like, like when he asked uh, if Theodore wanted a double date with Samantha and Theodore was just sort of like, she's in OS because Theodore has, has gotten nothing but judgment through all that, uh, the new OS and, and uh, Chris Pratt just sort of like, you know, passed over that. I was just like, okay, great. You know, you know, let's, let's go to a picnic, you know, things like that. So it's, um, but overall, it's just like, you know, most of the characters seem to just sort of lack empathy. And I just sort of wonder if, if the use of technology has sort of uh, been the case for that, you know, because I feel like just sort of the way we use technology, I think sort of has hurt our, our sense of, uh, of empathy. That also plays into Theodore's fear late in the film particularly when his relationship with Samantha starts to unravel. She goes on, she's talking like, I guess, the OS ghost of Alan Watts and, you know, like, goes and publishes his letters and stuff. And I, I just I just feel like there's almost this, like, building sense of fear with Theodora as she kind of is going through all this. Yeah, yeah, like, I feel like, cause I think with Theodore, he just sort of goes, uh, goes with the flow, but at the same time, he doesn't really like the flow, but he doesn't really like to, sh- you know, say it or fill it but um so yeah so i think he just sort of thinks these things are weird um and and but he just sort of lets samantha uh do whatever because he just he doesn't want to like come off as as rude or or just doesn't want to like come off the wrong way Mm -hmm. and so it's just sort of it's but everything i think just sort of things sort of just sort of get weird for him um and you can sort of see that through his uh through his facial expressions um throughout the movie as you sort of when, when you think something's sort of off for him. And, and I'm like, it's, it's a new experience for him too. So it's sort of, I feel like the whole thing, you know, everything's weird because, you know, it's just, or scary, or it's just scary in general because it's just a whole new experience. And, and when you're trying to get over someone or just get over something, uh, especially when you're grieving, uh, any experience you're gonna have is gonna be scary. Uh, it's just the thought of, of, getting, of being over someone that you loved is, is just scary in itself. So just thinking about like of that in general, um, it's just scary for him. Right, and you know that just exemplified in um, in that software update near the end of the film, right? You know where where she even tells him, I think when he runs to the subway station or whatever, you know, tells him, "I'm having eight thousand three hundred sixteen conversations and six hundred forty one people she's in love with, but you mean more." And that leads us to the end of this movie, right? You know, and you talked about how Spike Lee nails the beginning and end of this movie and, you know, how Samantha has to leave, all the OSs are leaving 
and that that line that just breaks your heart, you know, I need you to let me go. And he writes that letter to Catherine to basically, you know, that even if they even if they don't talk anymore, even if they're not any friends, he'll always hold a place um, in his heart for her. And, you know, and it ends with that shot of them of him and Amy on the rooftop. Um, you know, what did you think of that of the ending of this film? And you know how it's at like at one in one sense extremely like heartbreaking and tragic, but in another sense kind of beautiful, right? And kind of heartwarming in a way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful endings to a movie that you know I've seen, and it's it's very poetic. Um, and uh, and yeah, but I think it's just sort of because in the whole movie we've seen theater struggle. And, and and it might not be apparent, but he's, you know, he's struggling inside. And and I think by the end, he just sort of lets it go. And it, it was a sign of hope for him, you know? And, you know, like he still has a, has a, um, a road to go down to, to, to really get over things. But it, it's just, you can, tell, like, you can tell that he's just sort of, he's sort of um, moving on, which is, as you know, which you know is, Really tough for him, and and so he's just sort of, which, you know, that obviously that letter for Catherine um, is like his way of, of moving on, and and I think Samantha was sort of part of his moving moving on process, and so uh, even though he, you know, she was just a small part in his life, um, just for a small small time, she sort of helped him um, move on, which is what he needed, and which is why he got in the West in the first place, um, and and just sort of. Um, and, and that, that he also always have, uh, and then at the end, you know, just sort of that, the fact that he has, still has Amy Adamson's life, um, you know, just sort of, um, and that she's still, uh, like, you know, you know, that she's still there for him, that she'll always be there for him as a friend. Uh, it's still like uh, really nice uh, for him too. And, and that, that, that will sort of uh, help him uh, move on as well. For a film about divorce, and grief and loneliness, the film is still imbued with a sense of warmth by Jones, which is a main reason why Jake says people should go out and watch this movie. When people find out I'm into movies, I always say like, yeah, my, movie, my favorite movie is her. Then they always want, most people I tell it to you know, haven't seen it or they have heard of it, they don't know much about it. And they always want me to sell them the movie to them and stuff. I just never know how to do that. But basically I just sort of say it's like, you know, on the surface, it's about a guy who falls in love with an operating system. But, you know, there's a lot more to it because it's, you know, this guy's very lonely. He just uh, is going through a failed relationship and he's trying to find himself. And so through through that, he comes across this operating system and he uh, and he finds a connection with this operating system that he hasn't really felt before. And, and it's just a really beautiful movie that uh, of a guy who, who who's grieving and feels lost, and and through that lost uh, relationship, he finds love, uh, I guess, with his computer. For our final film in this episode, we have another story featuring both divorce and Scarlett Johansson. My name is Drew Jones, and my favorite movie is Marriage Story. This was another one of those picks that I knew before I even asked him. I remember when this dropped on Netflix in 2019, Drew Jones, a recent KU grad and also one of my roommates, clearly connected with it so deeply. I wanted to talk with him about that and see how much his own experience of his parents divorcing played into his response to the film. Um, but mm-hmm. as far as whether it's Noah Baumbach's work or just other portrayals of divorce on screen, is that is that something you're drawn to in particular or? 
I, yeah, I'd say so, honestly, which which is interesting also because I have, after watching Marriage Story, I kind of went back into more of Noah Baumbach's work just because I like the way he portrayed it. And like a few weeks back, I watched The Squid and the Whale, which was interesting because I didn't like that one as much as I thought I would, which may just be because it was older and it kind of didn't fit my narrative or whatever. But yeah, I think I think that's why I was talking to Kiri about this. I think I like this movie because it is so personal to me because I get divorce is such a heavy topic most times. And I mean, as it probably should be, but I think it I really could see myself in some of the characters and see people around me in some of the characters and it made it more interesting and easy to dive into, I think. Um, you know, for this project, I mean, I kind of pegged you down for Marriage Story early on because I know we've had conversations about it, especially after it had come out, I guess, in 2019. I knew you responded mm-hmm. to a lot. Um, but why why Marriage Story? Why, um, why do you kind of, I guess, claim this is one of your favorites? I think, I think the divorce aspect has a lot to do with it just because especially when my parents separate, I was really young. So I didn't really get too much of the ins and outs of everything. It was way more of like the aftermath of like, oh, these people don't like each other, but they used to like each other and like all this stuff in the back and forth. It was really interesting to me to kind of see the ins and outs and the dirty part of like all the lawyer stuff and how miscommunication can lead to so much different things. And even I think this movie in particular, why I wanted to look at more of Noah Baumbach's uh, stuff is I love how good the conversation is and how well the writing flows together and it doesn't feel so staged. I think it just feels very real to me, which is kind of easy to get into. Like I liked all the, I talked about this a lot. I, I wrote some notes yesterday, actually. But I really like some of the the way he sets up the camera work where you're like, it's a lot of still shots and cuts and like sweeping tracking shots. So it's almost like fly on the wall in this like intimate conversation is very interesting to me. Drew says he's never been a huge movie guy. That is, until more recently during college, which I'd like to think I played a role in, but that's beside the point. Just in general, it's been like, a, it was always like, a, go see a movie every couple months or whatever is like a family thing. It was kind of like a bonding experience. It was way more casual viewing for most of my life, I think. It was like, oh, that movie was cool, like not think about it too much. But uh, recently, it's been more of like, oh, this is interesting. Like, this director does this thing cool. Let's see what else they do and kind of diving in more. So let's dive into Drew's pick. From 2019, Marriage Story, written and directed by Noah Baumbach, is the story of an ambitious couple consisting of stage play director Charlie, played by Adam Driver, and actress Nicole, played by Scarlett Johansson, who've grown apart and decide divorce is the best option. They initially think this will be a smooth process, that they both want the same things and ultimately need to do what's best for their son Henry. But what they quickly realize, once lawyers get involved and the proceedings turn bi-coastal, things inevitably get complicated. Nominated for six Oscars, including a Best Supporting Actress win for Laura Dern, this is a film that finds a way to be more about the love shared than the love lost between Charlie and Nicole. Do do you remember kind of the, I guess the feelings it evoked of just, just kind of taking it in the first time? Yeah, I think, well, this is so interesting, too, because I was thinking about this last night after I watched it again, which is probably 
I think third or fourth time through now, which is crazy for me. But the first time I was really like, wow, that's so just so many like deep emotions. Like, wow, like I could see this and like, you know, everybody's trying their best, but things don't come out right. And it's just really hard to take and like sit with and you got to keep going. But like, how do you keep going if it's not what you, you wanted it to be? But and then my perspective has changed so much on this, I think over time because at first I was like oh shit that was like a really real like divorce movie and like really thought about how this happened and why it happened but like this time after I watched it I was like you know it's so beautiful because it's like oh these people really do love each other and it just it didn't work but they still love each other and they're gonna be okay but it's just different and it's weird which is something I did not get at all the first time. You know, you mentioned you had seen this movie three or four times now. Um, what about it makes it so rewatchable? Because, you know, especially with like divorce movies, like you mentioned, that's a really heavy topic. But like mm -hmm. this movie, what, what makes this movie different? What makes it rewatchable? I really think it comes down to, at least for me, the just the conversation aspect of it is it's just it talks about something so heavy but it just flows so well. And it's like watching real people have real conversations. It's really interesting to me. And I also, I love the way that it's shot. It's just very easy to follow and it's very pretty, I think is what kind of draws it back. And it's, it's very heavy, but I think because I have that emotional attachment to the subject, it doesn't hit me as hard as it would hit most people, I guess. Because I mean, the first time through, I was like, wow, that's really heavy. But after watching, I was like, you know, I kind of, I kind of relate, so it makes sense to me. You know, I have found, obviously this has been described by much smarter people than me, but I feel like, and Noah <laughs> I think himself has said it, that this movie is a divorce film, but I think it's keen to note that this is called Marriage Story and not Divorce Story, and that a lot of it is centered around love and, the, and how that captures, even as Nicole and Charlie are splitting up. Um, and, you know, this movie opens um, with those, uh, I guess, notes or letters to each other of, you know, yeah. what I love about Nicole, what I love about Charlie. Um, you know, I think some of the, I wrote down some of the quotes from that. You know, she makes people feel uh, feel good about even embarrassing things. She's a good citizen. Um, he never lets other people's opinions or any setbacks keep him from what he wants to do. Um, you know, just and of course, you know, there's that hard cut to, I guess, the mediator or whatever played by Robert Smigel. Mm -hmm. um, just that that choice to open a film about divorce on such a positive note. I mean, what do you, you think about that? Oh, I, the opening is one of my favorite parts of the whole movie. I think it's so interesting because when people think divorce, they're like, oh, these people, you know, they just picked wrong. They hate each other. And that's, that's why this happens. But that's not why this happens. These people, they love each other so much and something along the way, whether if they weren't meant to be or whatever, or something along the way, just kind of the bump in the road, they can't communicate, they can't figure things out. It just, it happens. It's not that they're like, oh, well, you suck and I hate you in screaming matches, which I mean, inevitably, sometimes it devolves into that, as you can see in the film itself. But it starts from a place of love. And even in this case, it ends in a place of love, which is very, very interesting to see it portrayed that way. No, definitely. And, um, and, and, you know, as you mentioned, so there, there's a lot of, 
And I also, I also kind of thought it was funny because I don't know if I picked up on this as much, but definitely thinking in your case, uh, Adam Driver or Charlie and you have the Indiana connection, which I, I guess I had never really thought about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that always cracks me up a little bit. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's a lot of um, bouncing back and forth in this movie between New York and L.A. and just kind of that distance and how, you know, as they're literally growing apart, they, they kind of have to balance those coasts. I mean, I also find it funny that like Noah Baumbach is like, I think a lot of people liken him to like the modern day Woody Allen of just the, a bunch of these New York stories, especially like his films with Greta Gerwig and stuff. Um, yeah. How, how, did you feel, yeah, how did you feel like this movie kind of, you know, balance almost these like two different worlds, basically New York and LA. That was really interesting to me, especially because my emotional t connection to this a lot is my experience with divorces. I went back and forth between my parents so much. Like I was on the, <laughs> I always crack up with the line where the, the lady that's observing their home life says, you know, kids on planes or cycle there just ain't good for them. That always gets me because I, oh, I've flown on countless number of planes, I think, over my life, but it's very interesting because it does, especially when they bring Henry into it, his perspective is he, he tells his dad he loves New York and he loves his life in New York, but then he tells his mom he loves LA and he loves hanging out with her in LA. And you can always tell which one he's leaning towards, but when you hear it from him, they think they're getting what they want, but they aren't. And especially with how tough it is that he's got to come as Adam Driver's got to come all the way across the country and basically abandon his flourishing play on Broadway and it ultimately closes down because he's not there because he's got to be across the coast. It was very interesting to see how dedicated he was to it, to almost basically like bankrupting himself. But it was still like, oh, this is a thing that you have to do, you know? You know, um, Henry's perspective, you know, as, as you mentioned, I think even at one point they're like, oh, don't, I think Ray Liotta says to Adam Driver at one point, you know, don't tell, don't speak for him because he's just telling you what, what you want to hear. Mm -hmm. um, what did you think about Henry's perspective or Henry's perspective in this movie? And I mean, do you, do you see yourself at all as Hen in Henry? Yeah, I think that was also one of my big draws to this movie originally is I do see myself in Henry a little bit especially as like the little kid that's like his parents are back and forth and he's really he doesn't make sense of it a lot but he's like trying his best to kind of cope <laughs> it always cracks me up when they're first in LA and he's like making his mom coffee as she's talking with her mother and then he's like oh we can go on the Jaws ride twice you know we can do it one time this way one time that way <laughs> and they're like oh we can do double Halloween but then there it gets to 10 p.m and you're driving around Rodeo Drive and he's like I just want to go to sleep like I don't want two Halloweens it's a very interesting perspective on how that's tough on a kid you know and it's it's weird and they don't one of my favorite quotes that I picked out actually is when uh Adam Driver's taking around Henry to all the lawyer's offices because he's like well you know it's my time with you but we got to like visit all these offices to like figure out this stuff and he's like he said why'd you bring me today if you can't hang out with me he said, well, because I miss you. He goes, but this is no fun. But that's, the kid just wants to live his life, you know, and all this, his parents are stuck up in this. It's a very real perspective of the situation, I think. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that 
you know, it doesn't help that, uh, you know, Charlie and um, Nicole's mom are very close and, yeah. you know, how uh, it, it gets kind of messy, you know, especially when he introduces, you know, the MacArthur grant that I, I think he says, you know, we did this, we did this together because I think Nicole, Nicole congratulates him, but, you know, we, we did this together. They have, they share a lot. Um, but of course, as you mentioned with the lawyers, like that gets really messy. And, you know, I think it initially they had said, oh, we don't need mediation. We don't need lawyers. We can do this ourselves. But exactly. once Nora gets involved, once Jay gets involved, once Bert Spitz gets involved, um, I mean, I mean, what did you, what did you think of the, the lawyers in this movie and how once they kind of get their hands on the situation, it kind of, kind of blows up to more than they intended. I see. I think that's one of the more interesting aspects too. I probably, because I mean, in my case, I never really got involved in that obviously, which is interesting that I felt like they needed to get Henry involved for maybe story purposes or just because some kids do go through that where they have to be more involved than they would like. But I just, I love the line. So, well, you know, I had to get my own asshole because, you know, Nora's just taking from them and just taking and taking Bert's like, well, you know, we're all happy here. Let's just settle. And Nora's like, no, we want the money and we want the custody. And then that, that sidebar is hilarious. Bert, am I paying for this joke? $450 an hour. And he's telling a joke. And it's, it's such an interesting take on, on how, I think it's even a good commentary on how outside people really influence this situation more than the people involved sometimes. Because they're, especially in the courtroom, that's such a powerful scene where they're just throwing slander at each other back and forth and back and forth. And they, neither of them wanted that. I mean, even in the beginning, they're like, we'll just settle this in our living room. We'll talk about it. It'll be fine. But it just, it gets blown up so quick and there's nothing they can do about it. Right, right. And, and you mentioned earlier, um, I just wanted to touch on kind of the more of the technical sides of this. Cause I mean, Randy Newman's score, of course, incredible. Um, but you know, Robbie Ryan shot this movie. Um, and I, and I think also a testament to Noah's Noah Baumbach's direction um, through shot selection, the editing, you know, I mean, there, there's those shots of all three of them sitting in bed, as you mentioned, when he goes, am I, am I paying for this joke? There's a great cut on the clock ticking to Henry. He's timing his mom. Um, you know, signing documents, you know, when they're on the subway, you know, you have Charlie on the right, Nicole on the left. I mean, th there's just a lot of technical elements used to show this separation and just how, um, I mean, just there's a lot of panic setting in. There's a lot of stress involved in this situation. Um, what did you think? I, I know you mentioned it earlier, but what did you think of how the way this film was shot and edited to kind of showcase that separation and coming apart? Oh, I... I thought that was one of the strongest points of the movie, I think, because it's just, it's so, I don't know, it's almost symbolic, but it's also so right there in your face. Like they want you to know that this is intentional and we want to show that these characters aren't together anymore. And for lack of a better term, I mean, they won't be ever again as much as, that's why I think the ending is so interesting because they kind of pull it closer. The beginning is so together and then instantly separate. And for the rest of it, they're so separate in like every shot, but then the end kind of muddles that line and pulls them back together. And I think some very interesting choices with that, especially because of how often they use the, like the back and forth separate stuff, but I think it was done really well. And I think I really like that about this. Um, you know, the biggest the biggest point of separation 
or maybe even coming together at the very end of it. But, and maybe even the most infamous part of this movie is the roughly eight or 10 minute fight scene, if you will, mm-hmm. um, as Charlie and Nicole are just braiding each other with insults. Um, you know, it ends with that every day I wake up and I hope you're dead um, comment. Um, I mean, just what did you think of how that was structured and just, I mean, I mean, they just, they just let them go at it basically. Yeah, I think, well, and that's really kind of the emotional peak of the movie, I think. And that's, that's another reason why I'm so drawn is, is that's a huge example of the, I think the comp, like the natural conversation flow, I think is like, that's a real argument. That's how people talk. They cut each other off. They scream for no reason about random small things and they don't understand each other, which is so good. I was watching it with Kiri yesterday and he comes back to the, the end point when he says, well, how does that have anything to do with LA? And she goes, it has everything to do with it. What does he not understand? I was like, that's the point. Like these two people just aren't on the same page and it probably never will be, but that's, that's life. I think that's what's so beautiful about it really. Yeah. And then, um, you know, when, when he's being evaluated um, later on, he, he has this trick with the knife and you know how he always pretends to cut himself. But of course, you know, as, as things continue to progress and as things heat up, he both literally and metaphorically is bleeding out. Um, yep. I mean, I mean, what did, what did you think of that moment and just, uh, and just again, how, how they, that use of the knife? I, yeah, that's such an interesting scene to me because it is so once again, it is so metaphorical, but it is also so straightforward. And the fact that Henry comes out while his dad's laying on the floor trying to prevent himself from bleeding out. He's like, are you okay? And he goes, yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm just tired. And he rolls over and tries to stop himself from passing out. It's, yeah, you know, it's what people go through. It's a rough time and, you know, they're trying their best, but sometimes you, sometimes you get hurt, literally and metaphorically. Definitely. Um, And, you know, I feel like a lot of this movie, um, deals with uh fulfillment you know and i and i think obviously fulfillment in a marriage and when that you know the absence of that leads to divorce a lot of times you know there's a great line from nicole earlier when she's talking to nora said you know i realized i was never really feeling alive for myself i was feeding his aliveness um and this movie i mean it's not the very end but it's one of the it's near the end when um adam driver is back in new york um with his broadway broadway team cast and crew and he goes up and he sings Being Alive by Sondheim, Stephen Sondheim. Um, I mean, I mean, what did you think of just that moment of him, of this turning into like a quasi-musical for like six minutes? And yeah. also just like how that, that element of fulfillment kind of played throughout this film. Yeah, that was an interesting thing because I think the, fir- the first time I watched this, I never, I picked up on that, but I was like, well, this is kind of weird. He's kind of just bursting in a song for a random reason. It was kind of lost on me at first, but as I've gone back through it, that's such an important moment in this story, really, is him realizing that, I mean, you know, at first he's saying it because, you know, oh, marriage sucks and this person's taking from me and taking from me, but then he realizes, but it wasn't all bad, you know, and there were good things and there were bad things, but it is what it is. And now he's just trying to move on through it. And that's, that is a really big thing. That's kind of the whole point of this movie is like, 
this terrible thing happened to both these people is bad as it was it was good and now they've got to kind of make sense of it all and keep going yeah and i mean i guess adam driver's got pipes too i didn't know he could sing apparently there we go marriage story can be emotionally taxing and as drew says not a throw it on any time kind of movie because it is it is kind of a heavy subject but i think if you're interested to see kind of a inside perspective on like maybe your friends have divorced parents or like even if your parents are divorced or you're just very interested in that topic because it is something that doesn't get talked about a lot weirdly because it happens so often (laughs) i think it's very well done in showing how this works and what people go through on a day-to-day basis without being too heavy-handed and too in your feelings at least for me i think it's very enjoyable and it has it kind of ends on a high note in a in a way if you think about it coming up next on the formative films project we'll look at some classic movie musicals russell crowe singing his heart out ryan gosling trying to save jazz and more so there's a reason this is in that like 1001 films to watch before you die book there's a reason it's like the Bollywood film that people can think of when they think about this genre. Um, So do yourself a favor and watch it just to see, you know, what has everybody just like losing their minds over this movie. It's one of those cases where I truly think no one can finish it and sit there and be like, no, that was overrated. I don't know if everyone else has this. I try to talk to my friends about it and stuff, but like uh, the movie, when you have nothing else to watch, but you physically have to watch a movie, you watch. And it's always, always Les Mis. And like you and I'm with people and like we just got done watching like, I don't know, like a funny movie, like hangover. They're like, what do you want to watch next? And I'm like, kill like literally I wanna watch Lay Miss. It's amazing. Like the way it did move me the first time I watched it. And then I tried to get I watched it with my family, uh, some of my family members, and I watched it with some friends and then kept watching it. People like you and a lot of my friends throughout the years. Um, they knew that uh, how much I liked La La Land and kind of took that as a joke. Like that is kind of like a funny movie for, I don't know, someone to just randomly like, especially someone who doesn't watch a lot of his famous movies. 